Welcome to Helpful Social Work. Social work has the power to change people's lives for the better. This podcast aims to help you learn, think and act with integrity so people who need social work get help that will transform their lives. I'm Jo. And I'm Jerry, and welcome back to Series 4. Last time we started our A podcasts where we're looking at social work through the life course and we started with pre-birth, which was quite a difficult discussion. Yes. We know that people have been downloading it, so do let us know what you think. Um, You can do that on our website, www.helpfulsocialwork.com or on iTunes, or you can comment on our Facebook page, Helpful Social Work Podcast. And this is 1B. So in the B podcasts, we are going to be looking at kind of big issues to consider them from from a social work point of view and ponder them really, rather than necessarily offer answers. And this is partly for our own benefit, so we have a chance to think and discuss big things, Um, but also hopefully to encourage people out there to, to be thinking about the big issues. Yeah, I think it's helpful sometimes to lift lift your head up and look out, isn't it? Sometimes we can get really narrow unintentionally. And so it can be really helpful just to consider the wider world around us. And Jerry, we're going to start with identity. Yes, just because it's a huge place to start, I suppose. Um, yes. <laughs> but we'll start with the definition, because that always gives me at least a little a little place to stand, a little bit of firm ground to stand on. So the definition, and there's loads of different things that come into identity, uh, being a certain person or thing, how you're recognised or known, so the kind of characteristics you have, the way that an individual or group feel about having a particular kind of entity. Um, It comes into the idea of being the same as something else. So you can identify something as of the same kind as something else um it can be about how you're identified so something like an identification number that proves your identity um we have identity cards and also it's used in mathematics but i didn't really understand that bit of the definition so i'm going to leave that bit alone (laughs) yes Um, i must say that all these definitions made it all as clear as mud to me (laughs) the thing that really interested me though is that it comes from latin idem which means the same. So identity is about being the same as something else. Um, but also that went on to, to, to be influenced by the idea of being um, or um, id, which is it, which just means the thing. So it's also about what this thing is and also that this thing is the same as something else. So it's really it's a really interesting mixture. Mm. I like that idea of it being your essence, the, the thing in you that stays the same. And and when I think of identity, um, I always think of that, that thing inside you that you wouldn't want to change or that you couldn't give up that makes you you. And I always think about, you know, the play The Crucible? And in it, um, Giles Corey, at the end of the day, he decides he can't give his name away because it is his good name, the thing that people identify him as being that he can't let go of for anything. And so he'd rather die, he decides, than give away his identity as a good person. It's Um, a really great question, actually, the the question, what makes you you? mm. To ask of someone else to try, try and get to the heart of who they are, who they see themselves as. 
And I think that's right. And I think what you've got to you've got to ask, what couldn't you ever give up? Because I think that's helpful, you know, because when you ask somebody what makes you you, they'll go, oh, I don't know, I'm the same as everyone else. What is it that you could never give away? If you think of all the labels you've got, all the, you know, identifiers, what are the ones that you could never give up easily? Like for me, I'm Australian, but obviously I've come over to this country, I've emigrated to this country, and I have a British passport. So actually, my Australian identity was something that I thought at the time I was prepared to compromise on. But if I was asked to choose a passport, Jerry, I could only have one, really. But from now on, I could only belong to one country, England or Australia. I would find that really, really hard because I think that I couldn't give up being Australian. That's, a, that's another interesting point that you raise as well, though, about this idea of having to choose, because I think sometimes we are. Sometimes we're often forced to choose, aren't we? You know, if we're, mm. if we're filling in a form or we're deciding on a nationality or something like that, you know, you have quite often a list of things that you have to pick from. Mm. Um, mm. I quite often end up using other for some things um, or I'd rather not say because of the limiting factor, the fact that you kind of have to choose. And, you know, my idea would be for identity, I think, that people didn't have to choose between different elements of their identity. Mm. Well, I mean, there's been lots of really good conversations, um, certainly that I've been aware of maybe in the last five years, one around gender identity and the other around um, ethnicity and even colour identity. You know, I don't know if you caught that uh, wonderful YouTube with the uh, uh, black comedian who actually says, look, I'm not black. I actually went into a Julix paint shop and I found out that I'm, you know, mocha, mocha cream or whatever it was, you know. And he said everyone should go into a paint shop and see what colour we really are because actually we should stop having to fill out on these forms, black, white, other. And it was that idea that he was pushing against, which was this idea of how a form and a tick box can really limit your identity and your sense of self to something that perhaps you don't feel or recognise. Yeah, and I think the reason that this, some of this is really complex is that how we identify is part of it. And then there's also how we're seen by others. Mm-hmm. And our understanding of ourselves obviously develops with the understanding that other people have of us in relationship and you get and how you're seen on the outside and how you're seen on the inside are completely different things you know like how you see yourself I don't know if you've ever walked past a mirror or walked past a shop window and looked and been shocked by what you see like so for me in my head I still feel about 27 and yet obviously I'm 55 and so sometimes when I catch a glimpse of that person I go oh who is that old person? Oh, that's me. You know. Um, so other people are seeing me in a very different way from how I'm seeing myself in my head. Um, and, and that sense of ourselves in relationship to others, that's developed from birth. You know, because before we're born, our parents and our family, they imagine us. They think about how we'll be, what our relationship will be with them. Um, and that imaging takes takes the form of preparing for the birth, you choose names, you 
choose people to be involved, you choose, you know, you decorate nurseries, you do all this kind of stuff. And all of this is preparing your identity in a way. It's very interesting. Somebody else is putting that identity on you. And, of course, one of the things that we understand is that not all parents have as much choice over these things as others and not all children have their identity fully claimed and shaped by their biological parents. But it's really shaping us right from the start. Yeah, and then that grows, doesn't it, as we as we interact with the world around us, um, based on how we behave and people's responses to us. Yeah, what we're trying to do there is when we're, we're when we're first born, we're testing the world out all the time, aren't we? And we're 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 trying to set up rules, uh, ways to understand the world based on how people respond to things we do. So a prompt, warm and consistent response to a newborn baby shapes expectations that the world is a benign and interested place where our feelings and experience experiences are important. And from that, we take this message, I matter. Um, and that's really important for a sense of secure identity. And when we get that response and it feels safe and logical, then we can start to kind of predict how the world's going to respond to us. And that's when we start to think, well, I've got control. I've got some control over this world around me. Um, and that starts the process of learning to trust. And those um, responses are really critical to developing a sense of ourselves as a worthwhile person, someone who it's someone who the world sees as worthy and other people see as worthy, and we internalise that. And that's one of our big building blocks um, to um, creating an identity, a positive identity of ourself. Yeah, so it's both um, kind of an individual construction and also a social one, isn't it? How people view us, we internalise that. Um, mm -hmm. And we might have to negotiate some of that as well if if the response that we're getting isn't what we we need or want, yeah. we then adjust. Um, but we also can can negotiate with others to adjust how they respond to us, can't we? Um, but some groups obviously have a much harder time being recognised um, and then have feel that they get compromised and have to negotiate much more. Yes, definitely. Um, and, it's, and, and it's interesting because we have our individual identity, don't we? And we have our group identity. And they're not always the same things. So you can sometimes be born into a group and feel really different from them. And you can sometimes be born into a group and feel like you fit perfectly. And um, that can cause tensions as well. But, you know, we form our identity, our sense of who we are in two ways. And one is through, you talked about this in the meanings, um, through identification, it's who we identify as the same as us. But the other way that we form our identity is by talking about who we're different from. Um, and this is a really, I always think of this as a really interesting one. Like, there must be things in your head, Jerry, that you would never do. Yeah. Like, I would never do this or oh, that doesn't interest me, or mm, I don't really think that way. Like, I, I don't watch horror movies because I, do, I don't enjoy them. They make me frightened. 
you know, I don't see myself as similar to people who are really big horror movie fans, like or people who enjoy being frightened. Do you know how some people get a real thrill from it? I just don't understand that at all. Um, so there's all sorts of little subtle ways that we differentiate ourselves from other people. And um, there's all sorts of ways that we, we say we're the same as people. Yeah. It's, I mean, that's really interesting, isn't it? Because um, in both of those, there'll be some there'll be some evidence, but there's also the potential for massive assumptions, aren't there? And of course, once we start to say, not just I'm the same as this particular thing or I'm different from this particular thing, but start to group characteristics together and say people who mm -hmm. are a bit like this are also probably a bit like me in this way or a bit like me in that way. And people who are yeah. a bit different in this way are different in this way, to, will, will likely, will probably be different in this way and that way. And that's why um, a lot of the ways that people overcome barriers is to get to know someone who seems, who's different in one characteristic and then find that there's a similarity somewhere else. And they go, oh, they're not completely different then. Um, yeah. And, and yeah, this also makes me think about... Um, identity politics so when people start to form sort of exclusive politics in the sense of, of people working together in groups but also in the sense of it can, you know, can then become very political that you start to identify really strongly on one particular characteristic um, yeah. and that can be really helpful for raising issues about rights or um, inclusion but it also can be about um, causing it can it can cause division can't it absolutely well and we would think about that as over overvalued identification where too much emphasis is placed on the need for everyone to be the same um and that can really result in powerful groups and individuals discriminating and dominating less powerful groups and individuals and it can also mean that you have a low tolerance for difference so You've come together because of a cause or because of a religion or because of a belief system or because of a value set, whatever it is that's brought you strongly together. But there'll also be differences in your identity and some groups find it harder than other groups to tolerate any difference um, and, and that can become quite destructive. You know, in social work, what we're looking for is a way to support individuals and groups to find a balance where their sense of self and identity is validated and valued by the groups that they dwell in so that they both feel they belong. Because one of the other risks is if you feel too individual, if you feel too different from everybody, then it's very hard to develop pro-social um, motivation. Like, you know, you, you end up feeling isolated and cut off from everyone and every and, and the common good, I guess. Um, so an individual who feels too different can also be distressed in the same way as an individual who's been forced to think everything has to be the same, if that makes sense. Yes, it does. So, it, again, the sort of social work role there around inclusion is really, really mm. important. I just I want to take a slight tangent and think about social work identity as well, because you've talked about how people can um, – gather together around a particular identity and also kind of set up markers and things like that and we do that in social work don't we um mm. your language is a really obvious marker for that and we do have i think quite a strong identity around our purpose and our code of ethics and the kind of capabilities but also you know i find when i go to a social work event 
I just like being around social workers because I feel yes you know, <laughs> a relationship. Um, yeah. But one of the things well, because that, we value and talk about similar things, don't we find similar things interesting and exciting and challenging? That's, I, I like to explore those thorny issues with with like-minded people. Yeah. Yeah, and there's there's a couple of potential pitfalls with that. One is the like-minded people thing that you can end up not being challenged if you talk to people who agree with you. Um, but the other is the um, the way that we might set up our identity in opposition to others. Because uh-huh. social workers have to be inclusive and respectful and non-judgmental. Um, and that doesn't go with saying, we social workers do this and you other people yeah. don't get it. Do you know what I mean? It's, it's that, that identity yeah. in opposition that's a problem. And I, and I and I think we we do set ourselves apart sometimes of even from other people we work with within, within our organisations, um, and we need a strong authentic profession. But at the same time, we really need to understand that um, we re, we are very reliant on other people and other professionals. Um, and I like to think of us like people who help people. We're like a team of builders. You know, within the one company, we've got electrician, plumber, bricky, plasterer, joiner, roofer, and they've all got their own set of identity, skills and experience, and they belong to different groups. But together, they build the house, and actually, you can't have a house without all of them. I speak from bitter experience. <laughs> Sorry, all my analogies this year will be house building <laughs> analogies. Um. <laughs> I wonder why you were suddenly on about building. Yeah, but yeah, yeah you're right. If yeah, we're all working to the same the goal, same, you know? yeah, we, it takes. We need all our all other professionals in health, education, policing, youth justice, community work, mental health, housing. We can't possibly build strong, healthy communities that value individuals and care about individual identities if we don't have all of those people involved. The other thing that, that's interesting to me here is how social workers, um, how we, how I am affected or how my behaviour is affected by what I think other people think of me. So um. sometimes what people think of me, but also what I think other people's perceptions are. And I think social work is, like any group, interested in, maybe sometimes preoccupied by how we're seen by others. Um, yeah. And there are problematic images of social work Um but there's also a problem with internalising some of those as well. Um, and I, I, I was reading some research recently by um, Lisa Morris, who was writing about identity and mental health social work. And the reason that's quite an interesting area is because mental health social workers often work in integrated settings and might be the, the one social model professional with a lot of health people. Um, uh-huh. And she was looking at whether mental health social workers saw themselves as doing kind of dirty work which is the work which is kind of the the work of sort of social control um and actually found that mental health social workers saw themselves as doing prestigious work because they were doing valuable Mm. work but they did find some of their work which was kind of scrabbling around for resource as Mm. as kind of dirty work so that how they how they might have seen themselves based on how other people might see them um, wasn't as significant as how they saw themselves but it's interesting that those those two things do interact with each other don't they um, our own perceptions and then 
others' perceptions of us. There's a fantastic piece of work, um, a fabulous piece of storytelling done by a woman called Irene Stemmler, and it's called Heroic Acts in Humble Shoes. And it's an exploration about the identity of nurses in the USA at the time. And it's when the nursing profession was at an all-time low in terms of their own identity. And she took their stories and their shoes and she made a travelling exhibition that showcased the compassionate, dedicated identity of the nurses and started a really spirited discussion about the future of nursing and nurses' identity. It offered them a way to reshape and represent their identity. Really fantastic piece of work. I think it would be great to do something like that with social workers in this country. Yeah. We could have their, we could have their diaries instead of their shoes. <laughs> Yeah, or their lanyards. Lots of people decorate those with all kinds of statements. Um, So, yeah, we wanted to talk a bit about practice um, as well. Uh, The Code of Ethics says we have to uphold and promote human dignity and well-being. So that's the person's integrity um, as an individual. And we also need to treat people as a whole so we have to be concerned with the whole person in context so we've got this these really interesting ethical um imperatives really to respect individuals and also respect all of an individual mm-hmm. and then we have this ethic around social justice um, which includes challenging discrimination and recognizing diversity so again we have to try and, and increase the recognition and respect of individuals and groups within our society um so it will look like with anything in social work it's not just how we work with an individual is it it's the it's the way that we work as a profession to influence Mm. social views and social Mm. behavior of you know inclusion really primarily and i think for me that means that we really have to reach beyond the stereotypes Um, to have conversations about similarities and differences and to be always curious and inclusive. So, um, you know, especially now, um, you know, as younger people are coming up and they're starting to challenge the way we think about gender, they're starting to challenge the way um, that we view sexuality and a whole range of things, we need to continue to be curious about what that looks like from their viewpoint rather than thinking we know what it means from ours. And so I think a lot of social work is really about trying to sit alongside people and see what they're seeing, see what their view is. Yeah. Um, and we also and that's, re- that's quite a skill. Sorry, yeah, and we also really need to think about um, how inclusive our work is so which groups are we working with who's overrepresented who's underrepresented um and also how representative is our profession of the population but also the leadership of our profession and that's something that i'm thinking about a lot we've just done a inclusion diversity and equality strategy in baswa um and you know the people who have the opportunity to or feel able and willing um, to come forward and, and take on senior roles aren't representative um, of yeah. the social work workforce, um, particularly in England, because we have a, a very diverse workforce in England. Mm. Although there are some places, many places I go to, where social workers have represented the more dominant group in society and they kind of take on a role. They don't mean to, but there's like a, a role of um, improving and assimilating minority groups rather than inquiring and co-producing outcomes that are meaningful for that group. 
and that help them maintain their values and identity. And I think that this is um, an ongoing challenge for us. And, I mean, it certainly is for me because personally I'm a white, you know, kind of classically educated female. Um, and although I'm an immigrant, which I am, I'm an other, being Australian, I still have many of the identity advantages offered to me through being white-skinned and having English as my first language and being eligible for a British passport due to my family being English. Um, and what really interests me about all of that is despite all of those advantages, I sometimes feel other. I sometimes feel like I don't quite fit in here and increasingly as I go home to Australia that I don't quite fit in there. Um, and just that kind of little glimpse of discomfort you know, can give you just that tiny bit of insight into what it must be like um, to be really actively marginalised or pushed aside um, as as some people, you know, find themselves every day. Yeah, and the, the combating of that um, is about allying ourselves, isn't it, with people who are experiencing it um, mm. and also combating it on all levels from the, the way that we personally work with people to the structural side of things um the cultural and kind of institutional uh barriers mm. that people find um the the other thing i wanted to talk about in terms of practice was intersectionality which um i i think is a really helpful thing for social workers to to be finding out more about um and a kind of useful definition of it was by, actually done by my supervisor, Tish Elliott, um, who put together a really good website with some other um, folk at Plymouth University, which is the Forum for Race, Equality and Diversity Awareness. So it's got a whole section on intersectionality. And the way that it's defined is that intersectionality refers to how different aspects of identity are interconnected. So intersectionality is, sort of helps to explain how identity and experiences of discrimination that arise from um, from who you are and how you're seen aren't examined separately from one another or by adding up different aspects of oppression so you don't look at them separately or add them up to achieve a kind of total you look at how the multiple dimensions combine theories around intersectionality came um, from a black feminist scholar Kimberly Williams Crenshaw and um, starting in 1989 so it's really about the interlocking power um, and how that impacts on people with with different strands of identity um, and often people who are most marginalized will have a range of elements of identity that they don't separate out but that then kind of um, they're woven together and they create a particular experience of oppression. That, um... Do you think Jerry that sometimes we in our assessment work are a bit guilty though of stacking and adding up some of those characteristics? Yeah, I mean, I think we use we use characteristics as shorthand, don't we? I mean, if you just, I mean, it's there's there's a couple of good reasons for recording characteristics. One is um, it helps us with understanding inclusion in services, um, mm. you know, who we're actually working with, um, and another is that um, they are part of someone's identity, um, but they're not. But they are. There's so many assumptions and labels that go alongside those that we have to understand what someone's 
own identity is and what their own experience is um, of oppression and not reduce it to, well, you know, people with these characteristics experience it in these ways. Um, yeah. Yeah. I suppose it's, it's the, it's, it's the fact that we, we, we just tend to try to, to simplify things, don't we? And we, and we rely a lot on checklists and, you know, kind of, um, not checklist is not the right word, but you know how we have clusters of indicators or things like that that we rely on to give us information. Um, and if we're trying to orientate ourselves quickly um, into another person's life, um, if they have a dominant characteristic like their ethnicity or their colour or their sexuality or um, their class, then we tend to quickly orientate ourselves into that, don't they? Even sometimes, I mean, I know as a social worker, sometimes if people tell me to go to visit someone on a certain street in a certain town, I will have attributed certain identifiers to that visit. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. And we like to categorise people people we like to categorize oh, everything oh. as humans and we also mm. like to um be able to apply evidence and experience and pattern match things uh, i suppose the, the response really to this is the same as for all good social work isn't it it's not limiting people or labeling or assuming um and listening to them and getting to know mm -hmm. them um and uh, enabling them to speak up about their experience rather than to be um speaking for them but actually knowing how to describe who you are and what matters to you and how you experience the world, that, that can be quite hard to do sometimes, can't it? That implies that you've had the luxury and the space and time to actually think about some of those things. And sometimes I think for some of us, we've been too busy living or surviving or responding or reacting. And sometimes I also wonder sometimes whether we even think we have choices in who we are mm. and we may or whether not, yeah. we think who we are is defined by the situations we've been born into. And we may also not know much of our own story, I think. So that's the, that's mm. the, the extra element or the, the more important element, actually, because I was thinking about getting to know people, but actually it's really about helping people to get to know themselves. Yes. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. And that's why things like life story work, um, which is something we use in children's services a lot, is a really great tool. But the other element we have to be really aware of is the identity that we bring into the situation, um, not just in terms of how we perceive people and um, how we behave towards people, but also what they might expect what their their other mindedness about us is so when they see me oh. what what mm. will that how will they perceive me and what will they maybe expect of me um and trying to kind of be really transparent and open about how our identities interact with one another yes and that's a lot to be mindful of and i and i think because we always struggle with identity is certainly um it's one of the things that i'm always told that, you know, all social workers aren't writing enough about identity and da-da-da. And they've got these little boxes where they can tick all the characteristics that make up someone's identity, and, and that's not very helpful at all, really, because it's 
as you say, it's it's a story. It's a story of the sum total of your characteristics and your experiences and your responses um, and the responses of others. And all of those things culminate together to make up your identity, who you are and why you respond the way you do. And the minute you define it, you limit it. And also the minute you've expressed it, it's out of date because it's also evolving. (laughs) Um, Exactly. And you keep evolving until the day you die, actually. I don't, and, and, and so it's interesting when we go back to um, some of those meanings and definitions you um, read out at the beginning and the fact that, you know, identity came from this idea of the same. But actually, ident- your identity is very fluid, isn't it? Yeah, it is. And I think the, the, the final thing we need to do, as well as sort of seeking support ourselves, is be really supportive of colleagues because social work is a place where, um, identity really matters Mm. and some people's you know all of us at some point and some people more than others will experience challenges or stresses on our identity and I think we just need to be really aware of that as well don't we how we support each other Mm. in this work so there's a couple of reflective questions to finish up with so the first is thinking about um, our own identity thinking about who's the same or who do we perceive as the same and who do we perceive as different? And then thinking about different experiences that we have or that others, people that we work with have, um, how those different experiences um, and experiences of different elements of our identity intersect with one another mm-hmm. and what impact is there from how those come together. 